Weekly Signals. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about financial crimes, and we have one of the top experts in this country to talk about to talk to about this. We've had him on the show before. I think he is wonderful. He also does expert witness testimony. He has a great background. And we're going to be talking with Robert Rebin. Let me tell you a little bit about Bob. If you haven't heard him before, or if you haven't listened to his interview before, he is incredible. Bob is a nationally renowned expert and speaker and presenter and workshop giver on identity theft and financial crimes. He's a former detective sergeant with the Los Angeles Police Department, and he had an exciting career with the LAPD. He did many high-profile assignments, including the SWAT team, Hollywood's narcotics, robbery, homicide, and vice squads. He could make a whole movie out of this. As a detective, he was a master of disguise, and in his 22 years of service, he was personally involved in the arrest of thousands of criminals. Before leaving the department, Bob Rabin was selected by the credit card industry to help develop and direct a fraud prevention program. He's traveled to Australia, Europe, and Latin America as a consultant for, for the past 18 years, and he has done speeches, let's say over a thousand speeches on the subject of financial crimes. As the director of the American Express's Broad Prevention Program in the Western Region, he managed a team of 12 consultants and personally orchestrated over 150,000 business and consumer presentations. In his campaign against fraud, Bob has worked closely with the California State Assembly and the Los Angeles City Council. And as an advocate for privacy and financial security, he has proposed municipal code and legislative changes regarding consumer and business fraud prevention expert efforts. He is a special consultant to Screen Actors Guild members and is a member of the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. And you can learn a lot more about him at Robert Rebin, and that's spelled R-O-B-E-R-T-R-E-B-H-A-N.com. And we are so thrilled, Bob, that you're with us today. 
Well, the pleasure to be here. You are wonderful, Bob. Let's talk about how you recently did a, uh, a speaking engagement in Sydney, Australia, which is one of my very favorite cities. And you did this on the issue of data security. Your topic was called Identity and Access Management. Why don't you explain to my audience what exactly is that? Well, it actually refers to does a person have the right to go into a physical space or into information or data? And sometimes that can be done electronically or, of course, in person if you're going to visit a location. Uh, do you have the right to walk into a business uh, office, for, for instance, or a medical office or a laboratory? You have to be identified, and there are multiple ways that you can be identified. So what kind of ways are we talking about? I know I've been in some, like I remember when my son worked for Google, they did all sorts of identity management, looking at my driver's license. I forgot what else I had to show them. And then they gave me a special badge, and that special badge had certain things in it so that I could even get into the elevator. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, kind of. Uh, right now, uh, there are, I say there are multiple ways you can identify a person. Of course, you can use the biometrics and uh, uh just recognizing a person is uh, it means something uh sometimes uh that doesn't have a good effect in other words it can allow somebody into a site who has been fired so in addition to facial recognition you might have a signature that has to be matched you might have uh have to search a database in other words the person who's sitting at the front desk whether it's security or uh, some administrative officer or perhaps uh, just the secretary at the front office they have to uh, make sure that the person who's walking through that portal is allowed to do so, that that person has authorized access. And sometimes uh, people are able to fool the person who's supposed to be on guard. Exactly, exactly. So whether we're using an iris scan that you're looking at somebody's eyes, um, and maybe they once had the uh, the authentication or they were authenticated, but now they don't work there anymore or something has happened. So there has that access management has to kick in one way or another to say whether they're allowed in now. That's right. And sometimes people are very good at or adept at uh, doing something called social engineering. Uh, my wife uh, works for a major corporation in the legal department. She's a paralegal. And somebody who was not working there uh, was suddenly standing in the offices, and what she did is she found a former co-employee, somebody that she got along with, and she wound up walking through the front entryway with that colleague, that former colleague, and she wasn't allowed in the space simply because they had uh, many problems with her in the past. Interesting. Well, you know, there was an interesting case that turned into a lawsuit where I had 100 victims of identity theft who had contacted me and they uh, were former employees of a company in San Diego. And what had happened was this. We found this out when law enforcement got involved. But a bottle washer in this um, this company, this scientific company, had access with her card to get into certain places, right? But unfortunately, one of the rooms that her access card allowed her into was a storage room. And this storage room had old banker boxes filled with sensitive data, including old employment and personnel records. So what this bottle washer did was she took those boxes and took them home and sold them. And all of these former employees 
found out that they were victims of identity theft because she had access to these boxes and just ended up getting credit cards and credit lines and selling it to her friends so they could get that too. So here she was, she did have an access card, but it should have been limited to only what she needed to get into. So people forget about that, don't they? That's exactly right, yeah. It's all about questioning whether a person has the authority to do what they're doing and uh, enter into a space or just be in the presence of data. How often do you walk into a bank and you see files all over the desk or medical offices? And uh, you know, and if, if we can, I'd like to talk about the medical identity theft a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, just real quick, uh, one time I was chasing a major identity thief. It was uh, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, West Los Angeles, Malibu case, and we wound up in Montreal, Canada. And we found out where this guy lived. He lived in a multi-story apartment complex that had great security. I mean, they had door after door you had to go through uh, that were electronically opened by the security guard at the front gate. But they did have a small uh, convenience store that was in the bottom floor on the street, and the the tenants could actually do their shopping for groceries and then walk through that doorway and go up into their apartments. Mm. Well, I walked into the public uh, grocery store, bought some items, some lightweight items that would fill a bag, and then I walked through with a bunch of other people. A security (laughs) guard said, uh, and of course he spoke uh, with uh, the French accent, he said, uh, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I said, I'm paying big rent here. You should know who I am. Oh. And when you find out who I, who I am, I want you to come up and ring my bell and apologize to me. <laughs> and I walked through with everybody else. I set him back. He was just off guard at that point. And you're a great social engineer, too. I certainly am. (laughs) (laughs) I made you think I'm an expert, right? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well, we have all these, you know, yeah, we can use the human. And, of course, they're probably the weakest link, right? The human link is probably the... But um, but we have all this technology, and a lot of the times the technology is great, but the people mess up. We totally mess up. But, you know, when we think about other countries that maybe they don't have the technology we do, and we have all this great technology. Shouldn't this be less of an issue in the United States? Well, you'd think it would be, uh, but, you know, the rest of the world, uh, just to address that, the rest of the world is really coming on board with this. The Australians take it seriously. Um, Estonia in Europe is one of the most tech-savvy countries in Europe. Uh, The Europeans uh, address security actually better than we do. If you can believe that, uh, in the United States, you know, we're locked into this uh, dealing with credit cards. I mean, we're still using the antiquated mag strip when in Europe they used the pin and chip. Uh, now there's some fault with that, too. I mean, criminals can slam the chip with a hammer and it reverts back to uh, you know, mag strip or uh, you know, the personal signature. But make a long story short, simply because of dollars and uh, creating the right infrastructure, uh, we are lagging behind some other nations. And, you know, we even have some different privacy laws, like, for example, in in the European Union, that um, companies cannot sell your information unless you opt into that. You affirmatively agree to it, whereas here, our information is sold and shared and, you know, given to anyone and their brother who will pay for it. And and that also makes it difficult for us to keep that information private, whereas that's a little different in Europe as well. Yeah, and even in Australia, 
they don't have a social security number that's used for banking and uh, for identification purposes. They have a tax ID number, and it doesn't do anything except uh, get recorded on their income tax forms. So, you know, we have we have some things going on here. The dynamics that we have going on here are not conducive toward reduction of financial crimes. Right. The Social Security number is really the key to the kingdom of identity theft, as you know. And we use it everywhere, you know. I right. mean, your doctors have it, your lawyers yep. have it, everybody and their brother has it. But it makes more sense to just segregate it and just use it for that. Yeah. And, and just to address uh, what you just said, uh, you know, I'd like to clarify that you're Social security number is the key to getting new assets in your name. But, right. But it isn't, of course, necessary if a person wants to attack your existing assets. And those are two distinct types of identity theft where they attack your your existing assets like your bank account or your credit card account, or they want to just uh, get a driver's license with their picture on it and your name, and they present that when they're stopped by a cop. Well, that's, uh, that's a form of identity theft that, of course, the Social Security number doesn't have anything to do with. So, right. you know, it, it's uh, something that has to be looked at. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or even cyber identity theft. They don't have to have your, uh, I, they don't have to have a Social Security number to just take over your identity and create websites in your name or social networking or any of that stuff. So yeah. you're right. But yeah, it the is internet. the key to, it is the key to credit identity theft. That's what, and I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. Yeah, the Internet is providing uh, an unbelievable amount of access for criminals now. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the banks, because I know that is something that you're really familiar with. And how are the banks protecting us or not protecting us and, and not protecting intrusion into our accounts? Well, you know, it has a lot to do with what the banks do, but it has a lot to do with what we do, too. And um, and you're talking about cyber intrusions now, right, rather than... Uh, like well, it could be them. anything. Yeah, it could be any kind of how, basically, how banks are pr- protecting us from intrusions into our accounts, but mostly online, yeah. Yeah, well, Ian, let me just cover a couple of pet peeves of mine. Uh, I was doing a speech for the city of Los Angeles. It was a town hall meeting on identity theft, and saw a hand waving at me from the back of the room. There were 250 people in the room. It was an overflow crowd out into the patio, and I, I could, couldn't see who the hand belonged to, but it kept waving at me. And finally, I realized it was the manager of my personal bank. <laughs> and she came over to me after it was over, after the speech was over, and she asked me if I could stop by tomorrow to talk to her in the, in the branch. And I did. And when I came in, she said she was astounded because she had... None of the information that I put out, she didn't know how cyber intrusions can occur. She didn't know how checks were washed, the mechanics of these things. Hmm. And and she needs that information. And I wondered, how can the people on the front line not have this information? And police officers as well, they're not being trained about these specific types of identity theft, the mechanics of how the crimes occur. And that's a problem. And that's that's what I see in banking. I mean, I walked into a bank in Florida I was doing some work, uh, some consulting work for a particular bank, and I uh, I walked into one of their branches with five $20 bills, and I asked the teller, it was early in the morning, there were two tellers standing there, young girls, and I said, can I get a $100 bill for the five twenties? She handed it to me, and I turned, and like an afterthought, I turned around and I said, how can you tell this is a counterfeit? <laughs> and this young lady looked at her colleague and said, well, uh, isn't there a face or something the customer can look for? 
and the other one said, I think there's a line in the, in the dollar in the hundred dollar bill that they can look for. Uh-huh. Said they were unsure. Now here are people on the front line. How can they protect us? How can they know what to look for if they're not trained properly by the bank management staff? And if the bank management staff doesn't even know what is going on, why That's in the world? Point. Yeah. You know, I walk into banks now. Uh, there's something going on with uh, with skimming. Now, most people that are listening to this have heard of skimming. They know that the ATM machine is vulnerable, that these criminals put uh, a skimming device over the slot, the card insertion port, and they put that skimming device there to capture account information. But there's something else that's going on right now that your audience needs to know about, and it has to do with when they walk into the bank and they use that device that's on their side of the counter when they're doing the transaction with the teller. And you have you have to put in your ATM card That's so that right. they, That's what they ask yeah you for. Now, yeah if you don't have an ATM card you can't use it and you can use your driver's license that's okay but right now what's happening and this is something your audience needs to share with their the people they're concerned with when they walk in and the teller says slide your ATM card through that device and hit your PIN number know this the criminals are walking into the banks during normal business hours. They remove the device that's on the counter at that teller window. They put in their own device, and then wirelessly, all transactions that occur subsequent to that to that switch out, all the information goes out to the parking lot where there's a guy with a laptop collecting all the account numbers and PIN numbers. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. now, they're not paying attention then. That's right. Now, when you walk into a bank, the next time you walk in, ask the bank manager or the teller, have you heard about the criminals swapping out these boxes? Nope, mm. they don't know about it. So uh, obviously, the information isn't getting out there. How could that be? I just don't get it. Uh, do they spend money on training, or do they not spend money on training? What are they spending their money on? Well, you know, there are a couple of thoughts behind that. Uh, one is that they don't train. They don't train. It has. What's it take to train? Send a memo out to the manager saying, advise all of your personnel about this particular issue. A manager saying. Uh, to the staff in the uh, in a pre-opening meeting, this is what's going on. That's all it takes. Right. Uh, maybe screensavers reminding them to uh, to do a particular thing. So it really or software have... training. I mean, yeah. you know, they could send up uh, like five minute software training once a week. Yeah, but I mean, the complexity of this it, it's not that complex to train to get the information into the right hands. Mm. So let me ask you something. When you were talking about the um, the managers not knowing some of how these things are done, I know that most people kind of understand the idea of check washing because they saw Catch Me If You Can. But mm-hmm. let's talk about some of these mechanics of how this is done so people have an idea about it. Okay. Uh, well, you know, uh, criminals, there are really three basic ways that uh, criminals can tap into your checking account. Uh, one of them is using an ATM card or an access device. That's that's one way. But if it's paper checks that you're talking about, you know they can steal your blank checks from the mail, uh, your house, your office, your purse, or your wallet. You know they can just take uh, one of the scams or one of the tricks they do is they'll take one or two checks from the back of your checkbook, and you don't notice it for quite some time until you see that check returning or that uh, the amount of money that they have withdrawn from your account showing up on your statement. That's one way with the blank checks. Uh, they can actually uh, get one of your checks and then counterfeit more checks. Yeah. 
They can go and just go to Office Max or Office Depot or wherever and create new checks. That's right. Or they can get a check that you've written to somebody else, like a business, and they use chemicals to remove your ink. And this allows the the thief to make the check out to themselves or raise the amount of the check. There was something that happened. Uh, I, I can't reveal the name of the charity, but it's a big charity. There was a group that came in from a foreign country working in the mailroom. It took these jobs uh, that nobody else wanted to take, running around uh, processing mail, delivering mail. And one of their objectives, and it was their their main objective for working at this particular location, they were opening up envelopes of donations or donors, and they were taking the checks out, and they were making copies of them, and multiple, multiple identity thefts occurred from that little scam. You know, I was on Montel with this woman who was an identity thief, and her name is Tammy Carroll, and I can say her name because I actually had her on my radio show And the interview with her was just amazing because she told how, and and now she's working with the FBI. I mean, that was part of her, uh, you know, her sentence. But what she would do with this gang, she was one of the methamphetamine gang members. And what they would do is they would go out to the corner and just take the entire post box, you know, that you put them, you put your mail into the post box right on the corner, they would steal one of those whole post boxes and bring it into her living room and this, you know, crack it open. And they would take out all the checks and they would make up new checks and they would not even use the name. So instead of saying Robert Rebin, Bank of America on it with your account number and routing number, they might put down Susan Jones with your account number, your routing number, and it would say Chase Bank. And they could write as many checks as they wanted to, and the bank does not even look at the checks. It runs it through the microreader, and the money is siphoned out of your account. That's and, right, yeah. And it happens all the time. She said that in one year, just in cash alone, besides what other, the other stuff she did, just in cash alone, she got $200,000 in cash. Yep. By those checks. Yeah, uh, the banks have 5000 and I'll say this, um, uh, this is kind of a standard in the industry. They have a $5,000 watermark, if you will. Any check over 5000 they take a personal look at it. Most of the thieves know this, and so if they're going uh, to pass a bad paper, they're going to keep that check under $5,000, and they know it. And one friend of mine that owns a business, he had two checks come, come through. They were counterfeit checks. They cleared in the amount of $4,990. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you're talking about the uh, the mail, and mail theft is uh, is a very very important thing to be aware of. Your listeners should know the days of putting your mail in the curbside box and putting the red flag up. Those days are over. That was a wonderful convenience while it lasted, but it's over. If they're going to write a paper check, and, and I still write paper checks because I find that uh, I would rather write one check. Uh, re- well. I don't want to do online banking or bill paying, and there's a reason for that, and I'll cover that in a minute. But uh, the uh, the criminals will see those red flags up, grab the envelopes. They know that there's financial information in those envelopes, and they take them and they wash the checks. There are 85 different chemicals laying around the house, like, of course, nail polish remover right. and bleach and brake fluid. There are many, many chemicals inside the home that can actually wash a check, and that's why... 
you know, catch me if you can, Frank Abagnale, you know, he's a, a consultant to the check makers. And what he does is he, he has check paper that is resistant to washing uh, using 85 different chemicals. If, if a criminal touches the paper with one of those chemicals, it turns the paper brown. Interesting. And yeah. they also have the uniball pens that that also cannot be acid washed. It's That's the exactly gel. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's um uh, it bonds with the paper. There's anchor uh like uh commercial checks. They put uh, something in the paper and it it's called uh, toner anchor and it actually causes the toner to get deeply absorbed into the paper. But back to real quick uh about what you said about taking the whole box. Yeah, the whole box in the corner. <laughs> well, you know, that's a sloppy way to do it because that alerts everybody in the community that mail has been stolen and so people are are watching. They're on alert. And, well, wait a minute. Wait, is, they go back. They go. Wait a minute. This is what they said. What she said. She said they'll take it and then they put it back. Oh, okay. Then by the <laughs> next morning, because these meth addicts are up all night, so they'll take it in the middle of the night, get rid, you know, get everything out of it, and then put it back by five in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, the meth users. You say they're up all night. Yeah. I worked Hollywood narcotics for two years, and of course, in my time in the police department, I met many people who use drugs, and it's the crystal meth users that caper for three days without a bathroom break. Oh, my goodness. No sleep, and then they crash. But while they're up, they do the counterfeiting, they do shoplifting, they uh, they <laughs> burglarize homes, and just a, a complete crime wave coming out of four people. So uh, this yeah. is what every community is faced with right now. You know, I was doing the presentation in North Platte, Nebraska. I was driving on the highway, and I stopped at the country gas station for a cup of coffee. I was leaving, and I see a, a rack of brochures next to the door. And one of the brochures, the title on it was, Beware When You're in the Woods. Now, I'm a, a sportsman, <laughs> and I like nature, and I thought I was thinking, okay, don't disturb the, the spotted owl or the wood right, duck, right, nothing, right. or ticks and Lyme disease. Well, it turned out it was a warning to the people of Nebraska about walking up on a crystal methamphetamine lab. Oh, you're kidding. This is in rural Nebraska. Crystal meth is at the throat of every community, and where you have crystal meth, you have identity, ruthless forms of identity theft, yes. including murder. Yes. Unbelievable. Yep. It's scary stuff. Yeah. And and what was really scary when I spoke with Tammy Carroll is here she is, um, a, a beautiful woman, 35 years old, single mom. And, and this is, you know, this is like a, you know, mid, you would not know. She looked like a middle class person. You know what I mean? You would never know. But this is this is actually kind of a typical thing. You know, yeah. so they they get into this. You know, she she saw that she could have nice things for her kids. She could have nice clothes, and uh, just got into it. So it's it's very very dangerous. Hey, listen, there was a woman out in Palm Springs and the uh, Riverside County and San Diego County. She had her five-year-old son with her one day. She drove through a gate-guarded community. She used to live there, and she was headed for a former neighbor's house. She stopped, rang the bell. She left the five-year-old in the car. Oh, she God. asked the neighbor for a book on nutrition. The uh, Ever the Good Neighbor, uh, she invited the uh, woman, June Roberts, invited Dana Sue Gray inside. A couple hours later, Dana Sue Gray finished up a luncheon, beautiful uh, seafood luncheon with her, with her son. They boxed up the leftovers, and she had it for a spa. She had the full treatment. The son had his hair cut. She paid both times with June Roberts' credit cards. Where was June Roberts? Still in her kitchen. Uh. She was in a chair. 
She was tied to the chair. She had a gag in her mouth, and the gag suppressed the screams when Dana Sue Gray beat her to death with a wine bottle. Oh, my gosh. And she went on to commit seven more identity thefts and murders. Yeah. Now, had the merchants who were doing business, checked IDs, compared signatures, done the right thing, about six of those people could have been alive today. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And this is uh, her excuse for it. She said, I had an overwhelming need to shop. Mm. That was it. You know, and that's what people don't realize, that sometimes identity theft, when people think of it as a white-collar crime, often it can include some violent crimes, too. You know, Mari, uh, you know, I know you testified before Congress about your particular identity theft, and people don't weep about simple data theft. I could care less whether somebody has my birth date and my name and my credit card number sitting in a database in Malaysia. It's when that comes back in. It's when it's unverified information. Stolen data in the hands of of a data thief is benign, but stolen data coming back in unchallenged, unverified, that's malignant. Yes. And you know what was funny, and I don't know if you knew this, Robert, but the My Identity Thief was one of that same kind of profile like Tammy, Tammy Carroll. Yeah. She was about 36 years old, a pretty woman. Her dad had been a cop in Ventura. Her ex-husband was a sheriff, and she had a daughter, and she was a methamphetamine addict, and she needed to shop too. So, you know, that is, it's kind of strange because when we think, for example, of most crime, we think of it with testosterone, we think there are more men committing crimes than women, okay? But not in this area, not in the area of identity theft. Yeah. It's a lot closer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, there was a husband and wife that were arrested on a fugitive California warrant up in Portland. And, and just off the top of my memory now, I'm going to tell you what they had in their possession. It was something like 500 different identities. They had uh, uh, almost 1,000 credit card numbers and 200 bank account numbers. They had 100-and-something uh, fake, uh, fake driver's licenses, Social Security cards, school IDs. And guess what? California wouldn't even take them back. And the husband and wife wanted on a California fugitive warrant for identity theft. And California wouldn't extradite them because it was going to cost too much money. Oh, my goodness. Bizarre stuff. It is bizarre. You know, uh, I, I did want to uh, mention, uh, uh, we talked about uh, a little bit about cyber. I mentioned that, or cyber intrusions and yeah. the Internet and all that. You know, I, I did want to just mention something that's going on right now that your audience definitely needs to know about. And okay. That has to do with, uh, with uh, let's call it uh, computer security, because using the computer... Uh, criminals can now launch denial-of-service attacks. Have you heard of this? Yes. Okay. Explain well, that to my audience. Though. All right. Well, what's happening right now, um, in, in terms of uh, telling them how this happens, uh, let me just tell you that when you're, you're teased into opening an email from a stranger and there's an attachment or using the social networking, uh, like uh, Facebook like or Facebook, MySpace, yeah. you know, uh, what you do is you see an attachment or you see a link. There was a young lady that received information over the Internet, a young lady, there were thousands of young ladies that received it, that a criminal was using her photos or their photos on her site, check it out, and there was a link. Well, that infuriates people sure. using my photos. Well, the second that they hit that link, it dropped a Trojan horse inside the, uh, inside the personal computer, and it, it was a takeover. 
Mm. Now, this stuff that's going inside computers now, this malware, and that's the umbrella term for it, the malware is so sophisticated, antivirus software cannot detect it. Oh my it goodness. changes its profile or its signature uh, uh, frequently. In other words, many times during the day, it can change its signature. It can <sighs> hide. It can hide in a file. It can actually turn off the antivirus software. It's unbelievable what this stuff can do. Only when you open it, though, right? Like if well, you open the attachment? No, or no. It... and that's the fallacy is that okay. people don't understand how serious this is and the many ways that this can get into the computer. Uh, MSNBC website, an official website run by the news agency. It was taken over by cyber criminals. The homepage of msnbc.com mm -hmm. had malicious code injected into the banner. Now, this is called drive-by downloads. Anytime somebody visits that site, until this is rectified, anytime somebody visits that site, it downloads a Trojan horse inside the business or personal computer sitting on somebody's desk. So you just go to the homepage That's and right. then you leave and it's still and it does it. Embedded in inside Ugh. the banner that says the name of the business or inside a picture, it'll download that into your personal computer. Now it is estimated by my federal sources that fifteen percent of the personal computers sitting on people's desks at home are now inside botnets. They're caught up in mm. these networks of, of uh, criminally controlled computers. Your computer at that point becomes a robot computer, and that's where the word bot comes from. Right. And, of course, the network, okay? Now, one of these bot masters, and they're called bot herders. I like to call them bot masters. The, one they're of like these the guys, yeah. yeah. a guy named Acid Storm, he was working out of New Zealand. <sighs> He's just one of 5,000 or 10,000 people doing this, okay? He had one million personal computers and business networks under his control. One million. Now, you recently heard, maybe uh, maybe your audience did hear it, but the president, within the last couple of months, he mentioned it a few times, he wants a kill switch for the Internet. Hmm. And that's because of the combined power that, that this guy, Acid Storm, and his colleagues can generate to, to cripple our critical infrastructure. Oh, my goodness. They can take down uh, airports, power, critical, uh, Electric, anything, uh, yeah. everything. They can completely take it down. Uh, you know, the country of Georgia was invaded by Russia. Uh -huh. Well, five days before the military attack, the cyber attack started, and they took down their, the, the Georgian Army, Navy, uh, no, not Navy, <laughs> but the Army, they took yeah. down their capability of communicating. Uh -huh. And, of course, the military had no problems at that point using the combined power of all of these personally compu uh, personal computers under the control of a bot master, bot herder, mm. they launched the attack and they crippled the servers. They crashed them. And oh uh, there are multiple ways that they have to, uh, they can, sometimes they can just simply reboot a server, but most of the time it's a very, very difficult thing to, uh, to, to get this back online. Uh, Estonia, I mentioned them earlier. Mm. They had a statue of a Russian war hero in one of their parks. Well, the Estonians, of course, they're a free country now, a democratic country. They removed the statue. Well, the Russians went nuts. They said, you should have let that statue up, and they started a denial-of-service attack, and it's been going on for now uh, for almost three years now. Mm. Constant, 
a barrage of uh, requests for information. They overload the servers and they crash them as, as fast as they get them up. They crash them again. Oh my gosh! It's, this is unbelievable stuff that's going on now. They can use your personal computer if they gain control of it. They can send spam in your name. Right. And and you've heard, I guess, uh, uh, many people receive email uh, from a friend, and the email wasn't sent by the friend. Well, that's because the address book was hijacked. Well, that's how they get in. They get in, of course, you know, by uh, teasing you to open up an attachment or by getting you to visit a particular website that has been infected. Mm. Uh, even Google has said, if you do a Google search, yes, one out of fifteen of the uh, the returns. One out of 15 of those sites, even though they are legitimate sites, they're not porn, they're not gambling, they're right. legitimate sites, one out of 15 has malicious code inje- injected into the homepage. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, thank you. So they can, they can send uh, uh, spam in your name. They can steal your identity. They have the ability to search through your files. They can open up new ports to allow in more malware. Mm. It, it, you're toast at that point. If they get in, you're toast. They can send links. They can store data. They can actually turn your computer into a storage dump for stolen credit card numbers or oh identities. Oh, my God. And yep. then also they can send the the, uh, the spyware that they can see, what the, the key logging sky, spyware too? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about when they, uh, when they, they can steal your identity. Key logging, uh, it can be hardware put on the back of your computer, and then the keyboard wire is plugged into it, and it captures every keystroke, or it's software. Most of these criminals are starting to use the software rather right, than that the Right, that they could send, yeah, because yeah. otherwise they have to actually get into your office or get into your home. That's right. Yeah. But if they do it, that's what I was questioning, can they can they do that key logging software with, with a bot? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. goodness. See, what it does is it just opens up. Uh, they have total control over your computer at that point. And remember... This stuff is sophisticated, and where a worm or a virus is intended to just disrupt things, well, this wants to remain uh, hidden. It doesn't want you to find out. It doesn't want you to reformat the hard drive or do a reinstall. It simply wants to live there to do its dirty work. So its objective is to to be stealthful. It doesn't do anything damaging, but you can sometimes see that that you have problems. It drains your resources. You know, sometimes your your system will reboot on its own. There's some telltale signs, but those signs could could also be anything, signs yeah. of anything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, like you just say, oh, my computer's acting up, and everybody knows your computer could act up. Yeah. So, so you know, the bottom line is, uh, in business, people cannot business people cannot allow their employees to use the business computer to do anything personal. They can have a workstation if they want to. That's separate from the back of the house. They shouldn't have it tied to anything dealing with that business. So and wait, it, wait, let me ask you something. So yeah. you're suggesting that the workstation doesn't have any access to the Internet at all? Is that no, what you're no, saying? No, it can. It can. In other words, uh, their workstation, of course, uh, yeah, I mean, there are a couple things that need to be done with the workstation computers. Uh, the business owner should disable the USB ports. There are several different things that they can do. And, right. Uh, that, that's a whole other conversation about right, that. Right. And that's because uh, employees can come in and they can actually use like an iPod, and it's called pod slurping. They can attach that iPod to the USB port and download everything off the computer within exactly. two minutes, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, in your personal life, uh, you don't do anything, uh, any financial stuff online with the computer that has ever shown any malware 
during a, an antivirus search. You okay, have so to assume that that computer is completely compromised. Now, now let me if, ask you something, though. Let me ask you, Bob. So yeah. if I'm running my antivirus every night and my anti-spyware every night, mm-hmm. am I protected so that I can do my banking? No. And the reason is, if you have, um, let's just say that, you know what Patch Tuesday is when Microsoft uh, reveals all the vulnerabilities? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, that, com- that gets automatically downloaded on my computer. That's right. But it's searching. Now it's going to search for known viruses right. with the signatures. Right. Well, this stuff is so sophisticated, it's unknown. Microsoft it doesn't have that signature built into uh, its antivirus software at that point. So when you get the update, these criminals, uh, I mean, they'll sit back and there's something called a zero-day attack. When Microsoft reveals a vulnerability, the criminals will reverse engineer everything and they'll they'll actually produce a a malware knowing that people aren't going to update their system immediately. Those diligent people who do it, they're not going to do it immediately. Usually there's a couple-day window. Right, right. In the meantime, they have created this malware, and they tease people. They they blast out these teaser emails, and they get a number of people to respond to it. Those are people that now have a system that's corrupted, and uh, they can't trust it to do online banking or anything financial. I mean, if people want to keep a ledger on the computer, like uh, QuickBooks and all that, they can do it, but I wouldn't link it up to the bank. There's right. something called a man-in-the-end-point attack now. You get in, you link up to your bank, you disengage, the criminal stays in. They can do online banking in your name from your account. So so what protections can you do? If you're doing your your antivirus every night, if you're running that and you're running your anti-spyware every night, mm-hmm. okay, what can you do? Listen, I was in Florida. I won't say the name of the bank. I was in Florida about 10 days ago doing a presentation on behalf of one of the major banks. Right. The people that are employees of the bank do not do online banking. They don't do anything financial on the Internet. Their computers for research, they can do, of course, you know, multiple tasks. However, they don't do anything financial. But they're not telling you that. Right. They want you to do online banking. That's right. Like grocery stores, they want you to use those those uh, customer activated terminals because they were able to get rid of employees. Right. And the cost of the fraud will never exceed the the dollars spent for uh, the five employees that might cost them half a million dollars a year. You know, right. with all with all the benefits and uh, the salaries and you know the cost of the fraud will never exceed that. Well, the banks want to they want to migrate people to do just purely online business. Well. You know, I do online banking because I was afraid to send checks for the reasons that we talked about earlier, Rob. You know, I mean, if I'm sending checks, then I have to worry that those checks will be stolen and that they can get my routing number and account number. So I have very complex passwords. I go into my online banking several times a week to check to make sure that the money is there. Mm-hmm. And I but know... Remember when uh- what I said about this stuff being very sophisticated yeah, and the man yeah. in the end point attack. Yeah. When you bypass security and you're in, yes. they're in. Yeah. 
Well, but I would see if the money was missing. And the the good news is if I tell my bank within two days, I'm not going to lose a penny. That's right. right? And, that's right. and I mean, no. that that's the other side of it is, whereas if, I lo- if I'm not going in and looking at my bank, then I won't know till my statement comes and that's 30 days. Right. See, you're, a you're between a, a rock and a hard I, place. I know that. <laughs> you're a diligent business person. I, I know somebody, as a matter of fact, it's the guy I mentioned earlier that lost the... Uh, um, like nine nine thousand nine hundred and something dollars out of right. his account. He checks right. his balance every day. He has the bank send him. He gets an email or alerts. A, uh, I do those too. I he get gets the facts. I think yeah. Oh yeah. But, well, you can set up like with Bank of America, and I'm sure with any other bank. But I get alerts. So every time money is transferred, mm-hmm. I'll get an alert from yep. the email that tells me. That's right. Now that's good. You know, you can. There are systems in place. But most people don't take advantage of those systems, and diligence is the word. Yes. You must check your balance. And now what I do is, you know, I've got some money sitting in accounts, and I use the phone, and within 60 seconds I get my bank account, uh, my balance on the account. Oh, that's a you good know. one, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I dial the 800 number. I, uh, there's a, a just a simple three digits that I hit. And it says, do you want your balance? Yep. Okay. Here it is. Yeah. And it's just ballpark it. Right. You know, it's all about knowing. It's about what consumers understand, uh, how they understand their vulnerabilities. And it's like the ATM card access. If somebody steals your account information, skimming that account number, the debit card, if a criminal taps into your account using an ATM device, they they are going to strip all the funds from your bank account you have, by uh, and this is by the banking rules and regulation, Reg, Reg E, they call it. Yeah, Regulation you, E. Yeah. You have 48 hours to notify the bank about yep. the intrusion. Yes. And if you don't, you're responsible for $500 in the losses because you were negligent. Right, right. And if it goes over 60 days, let's just say you go you on lose everything, or you're yeah. one of these people that just doesn't open up the statement and you don't realize that they've pierced in and stripped all of your money out of your account. Right. It's gone. And now you have to find a human. You have to dial that toll-free number and try to find a human that's going to be sympathetic. Now, they'll give you a provisional credit, meaning that it's a temporary credit. Right, and they'll take it back out if they want to, exactly. and they do. Yeah, yeah. And that's why uh, I personally do not use an ATM card. They're, they're for, well, let's talk about the difference between an ATM card and a debit card so that people don't get confused. The debit card actually has that Visa MasterCard logo on it, and it can be used online by fax, by phone, without a PIN. Okay? Right. So that's really important. I would never in a, in a million years have a debit card. But my ATM card can only u- be used as a PIN. I do use that because I get a better rate of exchange when I'm exchanging money, like if I'm you know out of the country. Mm-hmm. And I use that just to go in to see what's going on when I go to the bank and I want to see something going on or I want to put a check in the bank. But I would never use a debit card. It's so dangerous. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Well, you see, I don't use any plastic that's that's linked to my bank account. And I sat next to a millionaire on a, on a plane going down to, uh, to Florida, and this fellow was uh, asking my opinion about certain things. And the one thing that he got out of the conversation, I got an email from him later. He called his, his money manager in New York when he, when he landed and he said, cancel the debit cards, get rid of yeah. them. 
because you don't have the fraud protections that you have with a credit card. If you think about it, that's my right. God, we use credit cards. You can eat a meal and digest it and pay for it 45 days later. This is incredible power, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, you buy something and use it, wear a garment, and you pay for it later and write one check for it. And not only that, if you see fraud on that bank, on that credit card statement, you notify them with, you know, within 60 days and you're never going to be held responsible for a penny. That's right. And there's many cases, you know, for smaller charges like American Express. And, you know, I have a relationship uh, with them, but but I don't, uh, I don't get anything for mentioning them. Right. No, I like them too. (laughs) A card like the American Express Company. Yeah. You know, in many cases, they won't even ask you to fill out an affidavit, a smaller fraud oh. charge. They'll just say, okay, deduct it from, uh, from your statement. They're wonderful the like that. They are. Yeah. They are just wonderful. You just tell them. And some other companies will just say, okay, we'll, we'll suspend it and we'll send you an affidavit to sign. But even with other companies, it's not that hard if there's fraud on there. So that is that is the safest thing to use, isn't it, Bob? A credit card, a regular credit Absolutely. card? Absolutely. Everyone should just use the credit card. And uh, and I want to tell you something else. It's about this biometrics thing. Yeah. It's It has to do with your handwriting. When mm-hmm. you sign for a transaction, I don't care if you're buying a house, a car, or something of value at a store, your handwriting is incredibly important. It identifies you. And there's a lot going on right now, rethinking how important these signatures are. In, you know, there's a lot of theory about a criminal can, if they have a sample of your, your signature, they can always duplicate it. Well, no, they can't. They have to draw your signature. And we've workshopped this. We've, we've actually done studies on it. You can sign your signature in five, six, seven seconds. A criminal who's trying to impersonate you and duplicate your writing takes 15 seconds, you know, uh, right. especially if they've been asked, after they've been asked a question. They lose the muscle memory. They can't remember it. It's, mm. uh, it's very frustrating for them. And you think about how the importance of handwriting. Uh, John Hancock, his signature we use as a standard because it was so exquisite, the J, the H, the K, but it was only meaningful because of repetition. He did it every single time he signed. He did it the same way. What have we done? We have completely screwed this up. We have like five different signatures, no matter what we're buying, but we've got to get back to the basics. And there's something something just recently, uh, and it's the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid, I think, I think mm-hmm. that's the name of it. They said they're not going to take signatures from doctors anymore unless they're legible. Interesting. And th- there were over a million signatures that were rejected. These are provisional ballots and absentee ballots during the 2000 election, a million ballots were rejected because handwriting didn't match. It is so important to identify yourself with the handwriting that you have on the back of your credit card. And that's where I was going with this. Not the words, check my ID. That's an open door to identity theft. A person, Mm. if you as a consumer write, check my ID on the back of that card, what's a criminal going to do? They're not going to throw the card away, the spending power. So they go down to East LA or downtown LA they go down Alvarado Street and they pull over to the curb and they get an ID for sixty bucks or seventy-five bucks. Your name is on it, their picture, and they go spend. And if they get stopped by the cops, they're going to provide that ID, and they're going to get away with the ticket. And you're the one that suffers the consequences of it. So you fill in the signature panel on the back of the card with your beautiful handwriting. You think about how mine how, isn't beautiful, though, Bob. What's that? <laughs> Mine isn't beautiful. Well, that's why I, I tell people get back to the basics. You know, like from today. I have to forward. go back to second grade. 
What's that? I'll have to go back to second grade if and that's learn. What you need to do, you do it so that it's unique. It identifies you. And you think about Asian character, and this is an example of how intricate and beautiful the every stroke, every every time that pen touches the paper, there's character uh, built into the character. In other words, your personality can actually be built into it as an Asian person signing. Mm. But it means something. Every stroke of that pen. But what do we do? We think that scribble is going to protect us. It doesn't. And I've seen some major cases lost because people couldn't identify or uh, certify that they signed particular documents. So Mm. it is important to get back to the basics. No check my ID on the back of the credit card. Beautiful handwriting. And then in bold, indelible uh, red ink, you can write check my ID. On top of that, yeah. Yeah, and merchants need to do it. But they don't. Well, you know what? You, then you you tell them, you know what, I'm not going to shop here anymore. Yeah. And you have the right to do that. If you walk into places like Neiman Marcus, uh, some Saks Sales Associates, Associates, there are businesses now that take it seriously. When you sign for a transaction, you're signing a contract. And the business person needs to think of it as a contract when they capture that signature. It's proof a human stood there. Yes. Proof a card was there is a swipe or the imprint of the card. Proof a human stood in the store it's the handwriting. There's no photograph. We are speaking with a very wonderful friend of mine who is a nationally renowned expert on identity theft and financial crimes. He's a professional speaker. He's a trainer. He's a former detective sergeant with the Los Angeles Police Department. We are speaking with the one and only Robert J. Revan, and he is just wonderful. And he's telling us about fraud and all the things we can do. But I want to get back to this, Bob. What in the world can my listeners do to avoid a takeover of their personal computer? You got me all worried, and I don't think we answered that. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think I was kind of going in that direction earlier. <laughs> uh, maybe we we need to have two computers, one for online research and the other one for doing things, uh, you know. For just doing the regular, like, uh your own QuickBooks or Quicken or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So so just have one segregated for the internet and then everything else is done offline, you're yeah. saying. You know, I don't want to be the, the fear monger. You know, my wife calls me a fear monger. She's into spirituality and she does, uh, you know, she's uh, into, you know, love and peace. <laughs> yeah, but you have to be realistic too about yeah, what's know, happening out and there. Yeah, like the yin and yang thing, you know, yeah. but, uh, but uh, you know, somebody has to talk about the dark side and I find myself, yeah. you know, going there. But I don't want to create fear. I had somebody come over to me after a speech one time, and he said, I don't know if I'm more frightened or enlightened. <laughs> and I said, wonderful, because if, you, if you're combining those two, I know that you're going to make some changes in your life. And that's what people need to understand, that they can take baby steps toward achieving the goal of privacy. Yes. And one of them is not, well, let's just call it computer hygiene. Yes. You know, there's risky behavior. Yes. And if you've ever listened to Leo Laporte, Yes, I love him. Uh, so do I. You know, he's and I'll give him a little plug. He's on uh, with KFI, KFI. Support, I right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't guy. know if he's like, now this is national radio here, so I don't know if people can get him, uh, probably online, KFI.com, right? Yeah. So yeah. so even if you're not in L.A., you could probably get him, yeah. yeah. But, but in a nice way, he tells people, you know, there's risky behavior, and if you're engaged in it, you can expect that your computer is going to fry. Yes. So, you know, with that understanding... Uh, what you said is true. That if you're if you're diligent, if you check your accounts, you can report it within the amount of time that they that these entities give you. 
and set up the alerts. I have alerts for right. all my accounts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anytime there's a change, I get an alert. So yep. then, and I look at that, whether it's on my BlackBerry or whether it's on my computer. But but the scary stuff that you were talking about of, of these bots taking over and, and basically destruct destroying our whole infrastructure, that's, that's scary stuff. That's really beyond our control. Yeah, and, uh, you know, these bots, I mean, they can get angry, too, and they can do destructive things. It yeah. isn't, and, and there's the lack of privacy. Yes. You know, the fact that uh, somebody is actually inside your computer, this entity is living. I mean, it's almost like the movie The Matrix. I mean, it's so it's so scary, the fact that these things are living inside your computer and there's no way to get it out. until. And you... even if you have things encrypted, like I have... You know, anything that's sensitive is encrypted in my file, but if they have key logging software, then they would know what my password is to get into that encryption. That's exactly right. Oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. Well, see, I would never do um, my tax return online either for that reason. You know, never. No, and speaking of tax returns, uh, I think it's estimated that about 60 or 70% of the people that are probably listening go to places that uh, will copy uh, documents for you. Yes. And everybody should know that. Yes, the copiers. You know, I mean, this is a big thing. You know, we've been talking about it uh, for years, but it's getting a lot of attention right now. But it's just a reminder every bit of information that you copy at those public locations is stored on the hard drive inside those copiers. I know it. On anybody's copier, like my business copier, is the same thing. So when you do, you have to t- totally destroy the hard drive. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, all the PDAs, everything, you know, and, and everything. government workers as well as private industry, uh, they they really don't realize that uh, there's a great deal of information inside those PDAs, and they when they're ready for a new one, they just give it away to somebody, and uh, all text messages, everything stored in there. Uh, yeah. Oh gosh. We are. Would you believe we are almost out of time? And I wanted to talk about so many things. I know you have a blog, and you you talk about the the logic of government control of the centralized digital health records. Yeah. And I'm looking, and we we really don't even have time to talk about it. So why don't you give the website for your blog, Bob, and then I can have people go there. And then we have to have you back again because there's there's a whole bunch of questions that I didn't even get to yeah. that I've been dying to ask you because I and you're yeah. just terrific. Well, uh, real quick about digitalized health records. I'll just say this. I was at a uh, conference about two months ago, and it was uh, done by the federal government. And I asked the question, it was off topic, but I asked the question, how do you feel about digitalized, centralized health records? And the presenter paused. He looked at the audience, audience and he said, if you can store it, I can steal it. Yep. And that's how we're going to have to end it because we are at the end. But that All right. give your blog right now, Bob. Okay. RobertRebin.wordpress.com. Okay. RobertRebin.wordpress.com. You are wonderful. We will have you back again, and we love you, Bob. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. You've Bye-bye. been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Look at who's coming for upcoming guests. Look at their backgrounds. Look at their websites. 
And also listen to our archived interviews and download podcasts. And please write us emails about what is important to you, what you want to know about in the information age. Thank you. Bye-bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.